Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it, and we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Philippians is in the New Testament, comes right after the book of Ephesians. And while you're turning there, have you ever had a friend or a co-worker who was, uh, a saying that we used to say is a ray of sunshine, that no matter the situation, they were always going to be able to find the dark cloud around the silver lining? Right? No matter what happened, there was always some issue or some problem that they were going to grumble about. We all know that person who seems to take joy in having a critical spirit. They like to say, well, I have the spiritual gift of telling you like it is. And it's more like, no, you've got the spiritual gift of being a jerk. Well, when I was growing up, my, my, my parents, uh, my dad's here with us this morning, my, dad, my parents had some friends and every time they would go out to a restaurant, they would find something wrong with the food or something wrong with the experience. And then, of course, they had to call the manager, and the manager would come over, and they would complain. Even if it was the most perfect steak and the potatoes were great, everything was wonderful, they would find something to complain about this meal about so that they could get it for free. And they were proud of this. They, they liked to brag that they would do this kind of thing. Well, far too many of us have this grumbling attitude as a default setting. It's what we slip into when things start to go the way that we don't necessarily like. Well, our passage of scripture this morning, um, we're going to examine the role of grumbling in our lives. And we're going to see what appears to be a very straightforward command. But when we put it into, every, into actual everyday practice, it's something entirely different. So if you have your Bible, we are Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Zach did uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11 last week. I'm doing 14 through 18. If you want to know what happened to verses 12 and 13, talk to him. All right, Philippians 2, 14 says this. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And from this text, Paul is giving us the what, the why, and the result. Now, this passage, it begins with the second of two commands that Paul has for the Philippian church. The first command we're going to find in verses 12 and 13, where Paul tells the church to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now the Philippians, they weren't working for their salvation, but they were working because of their salvation. Because God was working in them. And the second command, the one that we want to focus on today, the second command from Paul is given to put some skin in the game. It's almost as if Paul was anticipating what the Philippians were going to ask. It was as if he said, you want us to work out our salvation? What does that look like? What's the bare minimum 
that I have to do in order to do that. And that's just like us, isn't it? We want to know the bare minimum that we have to do. So what does Paul do? Paul goes right for it. He tells us, he tells the Philippians that they are to do all things without grumbling or complaining. And that's the first point we're going to look at today. The what? Do all things without grumbling. Have you ever tried to do anything without grumbling or complaining? When I started studying for this passage, I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go today and I'm not going to grumble or complain. I tried it on my drive to work. Think about that for a second. My drive to work. I hadn't even gotten out of the neighborhood before the car in front of me was already getting on my nerves. Then the light that I could have gotten through, if the guy in front of me hadn't been driving the speed limit, it changed to red. And then, of course, it was rush hour. So as I'm driving down Route 9, there are a lot of cars trying to go over the mountain to get down into Virginia. And that's the morning that a police officer decided he needed to park his car on the side of the road. You ever had a morning like that? That is not the kind of morning where you want to try to not grumble and complain. And while I don't think that Paul had to deal with a commute to Percival, he was in prison when he wrote this letter. My concerns with the traffic pale in comparison, and Paul was telling the Philippians not to grumble. He's locked up in prison, and he's telling them, don't grumble. We grumble if there's too much ice in our soda. But the emphasis here should be put on the word all. Paul wants his readers and us to know that there is no line between the secular, our everyday lives, and the sacred, our lives at church. Everything is to be done without grumbling and complaining. Paul puts it this way in a more positive spin when he's writing to the Corinthians. He says, um, 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When Paul writes this, he's making allusions to the people of Israel. Now, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks and months um, on Sunday mornings, you know that grumbling and complaining was a big problem for the nation of Israel. It didn't matter what God did, they immediately began to grumble and complain about it. Despite the fact that God had delivered them in some pretty incredible ways, some miraculous ways, the, the, the plagues, parting the Red Sea, all of the things that God had done for them, immediately the children of Israel began to complain as if it was their national pastime. Our grumbling and disputing demonstrates a lack of contentment with the gifts that God has given us. It also shows that we think we know better than God. As, uh, as Patrick said, my wife and I have five children. I'm also a third grade teacher, so I'm with groups of children pretty much every hour of the day. And as a parent and a teacher, I have to give instructions in order to safely guide the children in my care and to make sure they're learning the things that they need to learn. And what I found is there is always that one child. There's always that one kid in the group that no matter what we're doing, he wants to complain about it. This week was beautiful. Toward the end of the week, the, the, the temperature changed, it got cooler, and so I said, Hey, let's have extra recess. I took him outside for extra recess, and I kid you not, within five minutes, there was one kid coming up to me. What time are we going inside? 
It's cold out here. What time are we going inside? Right? They, they, were, they were not content with what they've been given. And when we find ourselves about to grumble or argue about our situation, our only recourse is to look to Christ and the truths of the gospel. Because the reality of the situation is we've been given far more than we deserve. For those of us who are believers, we have been adopted into the family of God. We have been justified before God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this was done not because of our merit or our influence or anything. It was done because of the grace of God. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is what we need to hold on to when we feel the urge to grumble and complain. Now, not only does Paul give the church at Philippi a command, but he also gives them the reason for the command. That's the second point of this passage, the why. The why is set the example. If you look closely at verses 14, 15, and 16, you're going to notice that it's one really long sentence containing a couple of different thoughts. It's as if Paul started writing, and he just got so excited about what he was writing, he didn't know how to end the sentence. He didn't know how to land the plane on what he was doing. And the point that Paul is making to his readers is that they're to be examples to the unbelieving world around them. Paul told them to put away grumbling and disputing because it would make them distinct from the world. Grumbling isn't only a sin against God, but it damages our witness in front of the world. And so there are three ways that Paul is calling his readers to set the example. First, he wants them to shine as children of God. When Paul tells his readers to do all things without grumbling or disputing, he wants them to resist the temptation to grumble. And instead, he wants them to strive to be blameless, pure, and innocent because they're children of God relying on the Holy Spirit. Will they be perfect at doing this? Not at all. But they will be distinct. They will be set apart from the rest of the world. Grumbling causes us to lose that distinction. This behavior is unique to an unbelieving world. Paul describes the unbelieving world as a crooked and twisted generation. It's a dark place without Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing here is Paul is making an allusion to uh, Daniel 12, verse 3, when he's telling the church that they should be shining like, like lights. Uh, Daniel 12, 3 says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. To an unbelieving world, the gospel makes absolutely no sense. As believers, we make the claim that we find rest and comfort in Jesus Christ. We tell the world that Jesus is enough. But when we find ourselves grumbling, what we're doing instead is we're telling the world that Jesus isn't enough. Think about that for a second. When we grumble, we tell the world that Jesus isn't enough. We're expressing the belief that somehow our circumstances are beyond God's control. And when we do that, our light begins to fade. We lose our effectiveness as witnesses to the world. Imagine the impact we would have if, instead of grumbling and arguing about our situations, we began to turn those into words of praise and blessing. 
Some of you may be familiar with a, uh, a radio host by the, guy, by the name of Dave Ramsey. And, and Dave Ramsey has these, uh, these unique things that he says, but whenever somebody calls in and says, hey, Dave, how you doing? He always responds by saying, better than I deserve. And this may sound trite, but it's a reminder of the gospel in our situations. For those of us who are believers, we can shine like stars to a darkened world by remembering that we're better off because we have Jesus. And as we consider what it means for us to shine like stars to this generation, we need to remember that we don't have to do it in our own strength. Trying to shine like stars in our own strength is exhausting. It will wear you out and, and you will find yourself completely devastated. You will, you will find yourself falling. It is God who is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. The second thing Paul tells the readers here is, in setting the example is he tells them to hold fast to the word of life. So what does it look like to hold fast to the word of life? Over in Psalm 3, if you want to flip there, you can. Um, we, we're going to find an example of this. I'm going to read it here for you. Psalm 3, we're going to read the whole psalm. It says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. So here's the background of, of this psalm. Here's why it was written. Psalm 3 was written by David during one of the darkest moments of his life. One of David's sons, Absalom, had begun to turn the people away from David. David was the king at this time, and Absalom had come into the city after a period of exile and had begun turning people away from David and bringing them over to his side. He would go into the city, and, and when people would come in to, to see David, to get some kind of judgment, Absalom would say, hey, come over here. Let me take care of that. I, I can take care of this. And so he began to amass a great following of people. And, and David didn't know that Absalom was doing this. Eventually, Absalom had gathered enough people to his side, and he declared himself to be the king. Absalom was leading a revolt against his own father. Well, when David found out that Absalom was planning to come and kill him and take his throne, he immediately gathered his family and ran out of the city. And as he was escaping, there was a man named Shimei who had been faithful to the former king, a man by the name of Saul. And Shimei came and he began to harass David and his group as they were leaving. Shimei began to curse David and to throw stones at him. And what he was telling him was that um, Shimei was telling David that this was happening and that God had rejected him because of the way that David had handled the Saul situation. And what we see as, as this psalm begins is David is declaring his enemies are gathering around him and that they were telling him that God had rejected him. That's not a good place to be. That's not a good thought process to have when it, it, that God has rejected you. And that's exactly how it must have felt to David. His own son had turned against him, 
and was attempting to kill him. One of his closest friends, a man named, uh, a man named Ahithophel, let me see if I can say this right, Ahithophel, had betrayed him and joined Absalom, was acting as one of his counselors. He was being forced to leave his home. Yet in the middle of all of this turmoil, with all of these things happening around him, David declares his trust in God, and he says, I'm going to take a nap. He's got armed men coming after him, and he says, I'm going to lay down and take a nap. Why was, David, why was David able to have this confidence? Because he believed God's promises. He was holding fast to the word of life. And to an unbelieving world, this makes no sense. However, to those who are holding fast to the gospel, the words of life found in the scripture, we can have this confidence because we're not relying on our own strength. Our confidence, like David's, is found in God. Our confidence, our ability to face our circumstances with joy and praise is found when we turn to the scriptures. Our faith in God comes from understanding his character as revealed to us in the Bible. It was the promises given to them by God that allowed the heroes of the faith, detailed in Hebrews 11, to face their trials with joy. It was their faith in God that allowed Paul and Silas to sing and pray while locked in the Philippian jail. We can have the same steadfast faith in God's promises when we hold tightly to the word of life, believing the promises of salvation revealed to us in God's word. And the final thing that Paul wants, his readers, wants of his readers is for them to look forward to the day of Christ. So in this final section of the sentence, Paul is making a personal note. He was encouraging the Philippians to continue enduring in their faith, not just for their sake, but also for his sake. The time and love that he had poured into, these, into the believers of this church was to have a lasting impact going all the way until the day of Christ's return. Paul wanted to make sure that his efforts with them weren't in vain, that they would continue to believe and obey God's word. Their perseverance until Christ's return would prove to him that the love and tears that he had poured into their lives weren't in vain. Far too many of us think our Christian life is just about us, that it's just a personal matter, that our faith is between ourselves and God. In one sense, our faith is personal, but in another sense, we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in the faith to keep persevering and to keep pursuing Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews wrote these words, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When we encourage one another by living faithfully and by giving praise to God in the tough circumstances, by not grumbling, we build each other up in Christ when we're joyful in the things we say and in the life we live, by not grumbling. Doing so sets an example to an unbelieving world and serves as encouragement to persevere to our believing brothers and sisters. The life we live without grumbling sets an example and encourages others to continue doing so as well. And the final point in this whole entire passage is uh, the result. 
And what is, the res what is the result of doing things without grumbling? We can rejoice in our sacrifice. So as we shine as lights in a dark world by putting away grumbling and holding firmly to the word of life, we can also rejoice in our sacrifice. In the previous verses, Paul wrote a beautiful song about the sacrificial attitude of Jesus. That's what we looked at last week with uh, Zach. Most importantly, though, was the fact that Jesus humbled himself, not so that he would be exalted, but so that God would be glorified. Paul was stressing that this attitude should be found among us as believers as well. When our hearts and attitudes are geared toward praise instead of grumbling, we can have the same mind that Christ showed us. But what Paul was really stressing to his readers was the joy that was found in their sacrificial faith. The image Paul is giving is that of a drink offering. A drink offering was typically an offering of wine that was poured onto a burnt offering. So as the priests were, were sacrificing the animal, they would come in with a, uh, with a chalice, I'm going to use that word, chalice of wine, and what they would do is they would then pour it over the, the, the hot altar onto the meat. And as the, the wine would hit the hot altar, it would begin to sizzle and it would give off this pleasing aroma as it began to, to boil and evaporate. To Paul, it was an example of a joyful offering. Paul is stressing to them that even if he's asked to give his life for his faith, he's going to rejoice in doing so. In fact, He's more concerned with the growth and the maturity of the church and the furtherance of the gospel than he is with his own personal safety. Paul wants to see the gospel advanced, even if it costs him everything. I recently finished a book by a, an author named John Piper um, called Risk is Right. And the thesis of that book is that it's better to take a risk for the advancement of the gospel than it is to simply play it safe. The difficulties and the trials that accompany the Christian life are to be experienced with joy, even if those difficulties require an ultimate sacrifice. It's this joy that allowed Paul to write, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's this joy that allows a missionary like Jim Elliott to say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. As believers, knowing that we are secure in Jesus Christ, we need to be ready to make sacrifices for the gospel and to rejoice in those sacrifices. Paul is setting the example for the Philippians, and he's calling them to follow just as he is following the example of Jesus. What we have in Philippians 2, 17 through 18 is a picture of what it means to rejoice in difficult times. And how is Paul able to have this joy? What is causing him to have this mindset as he's experiencing all of these trials? He is living in light of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord, and it's through Jesus Christ that Paul found his joy. The same joy is available to us as well. Our strength and our joy are found in Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, it can seem impossible to do all things without grumbling and arguing. It's very difficult. 
But it's important that we follow this command. Our attitudes and our speech are observed by the unbelieving world around us. And it's our response to our situations and circumstances that are going to make us distinct. It's what allows us to shine like stars. But even more importantly, our speech is evidence that God is working in us. It's proof that all things, even the way that we handle difficult situations, have been made new through Jesus Christ. This is why James writes that those who can control their tongue are mature. James 3, 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. But we also have the ultimate example of this in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Not only do we have Jesus as an example to follow, for those of us who are believers, who are trusting him for our salvation, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, living us, empowering us to turn our grumbling and disputing back into praise as we sing praise, as we seek to bring the word of life to a darkened world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi and to um, it, to us in an extension of them. And Father, I pray that uh, each one of us would examine the things that we do, that we would rely on you and trust you, knowing that it's through you and through you alone that we're able to put away grumbling and disputing. Father, I thank you for, uh, for your son, for Jesus Christ, and for, for the death that he died for us, uh, the life that he lived, the death that he died, and that through him we can be saved, that we can have salvation. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never uh, put their faith and trust in you, that they would take, and take the opportunity to meet with somebody, to talk with somebody in regards to how that can be taken care of. We ask all this in your beautiful name. Amen.